Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm excited to talk to our guest, Wendy Nash. She is a mindfulness instructor, a coach who worked with uh, CEOs, entrepreneurs, helping to bring mindfulness to business. It's something that I also do here in Boulder. She's uh, out of Australia. And it's really interesting. I'm looking forward to the conversation with you, Wendy. Thank you very much. Um, I always like to start the program with a couple of things. So first up to say thank you very much, uh, really for the amount of prep work. We've had a few conversations. We've touched base. There's another person here doing the audio. There's a lot of people that come together to get the program to happen. That works, you know, like you're thinking about what's going to work for your audience, I've been thinking, well, what do I, you know, what's going to be useful for your audience? And then the person who's doing the engineering at the back here is also part of that. Well, how can this work well together? There's, you know, a whole set of protocols that we've all discussed. So just to say thank you very much for all the thoughtfulness and respect and kindness. Um, Just to get even to this point, there's a lot of prep work not only in the thinking, but in the equipment, having good equipment. So I always like to uh, say thank you for all the prep work. Um, I think it's really important to acknowledge how we got got here. And that ties into the second thing I like to do, which is that um, I'm, I'm calling from Australia, from Queensland, and I'm in a, an Aboriginal country, First Nations country called Gubby Gubby Country. Um, and, you know, the people here have been caring for the land and, and the environment for about 70,000 years. So if you think about Christianity, has been around for 2,000 and Buddhism's been around for 2,500. We're talking 70,000 years of tendering, noticing, caring, figuring out how humans work together, what are the weak spots, what are the strengths, how to make sure that the community survives sort of very difficult circumstances and and wealth and so it's not until we know where we've come from that we can sort of say this is where we are and give an idea of where we're going to so I think it's really important to recognize the sort of pre-work that has helped us get to this point and that includes being here on Gubby Gubby Country so yeah thank you very much. That's a really great reminder right and it really speaks to the interconnectedness of it all, right? And and all the different complexity that comes into this moment and this program being created. So thank you for bringing my attention to that. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So, you know, in this first segment of the show, we like to talk about, I guess, kind of a great tangent, right? Like how you got to where you are now, right? How you started to focus on mindfulness, your journey with Buddhism. Um, on your website, you talked about being very angry for a while, um, so I'm curious oh, if you yeah. if you could share what that transition was like, what your From the Ashes story is. Actually, I was on a retreat last year with uh, my, my therapist from 20 years ago, and nobody else knew that she had been my therapist. She was the one of the retreat leaders. 
And I just said, I've got a happy story because everyone goes, oh, you know, how do I manage my anxiety? How can I do this? I'm a real failure at meditation. And I said, I've got a happy story. I used to be angry 20 years ago. And now when people meet me, they go, ah, you angry. And I said, I've done it. And so she knew what I was talking about. And she was just super, super happy for me that I have made that change from being a very angry, hurt um hostile and suspicious person to being much more open now as i said people never think of me as being angry it does change but you do actually have to apply you can't it's not going to happen by not engaging with your stuff so my stuff that i came with was that um both my younger sister so when i was about 1 my younger sister was born with a terminal illness and it was a huge roller coaster in the 60s and you know that was a, t- a very patriarchal society there was no support no counseling that just did not exist and so there was no emotional support my parents were the only family here and my two elder brothers um and this young child who was dying and the kids were four children under the age of five, the youngest who was dying. So you can imagine there's a lot wow. of turmoil like that. Three weeks later, my father's, my mother's father died. A year later, my father's father died. A year after that, my mother's mother got ill. And a year after that, she died. Oh, Another four years later after that, my father got ill. And then because he, I think he had seen all the calamity of care, the carer role, complete complex you know like it's exhausting and it's horrible and it's it's beyond the capacity you know people go mad um and they just break um he decided that well he was sick and he just he couldn't imagine putting his family through that and so he wrote us all letters and then one day he just left and we were clueless my mother was furious absolutely livid she had yet again been left with the responsibility to care for other people and she had her own work to do and she's not somebody who is able to engage internally so she was full of rage for so from when i was 13 um she still tries to squish that down with positive thinking so i had the kind of mantra of be think positively this underlying rage that was unbearable i'd also been bullied a lot at school so there was just like and there was just more stuff in amongst all that so there was stuff <laughs> that is and that i was bitter hurt and angry is no no surprise i mean i think now i go yeah i just had massive complex ptsd and i was super fortunate in that i think because i'd seen so much death and so much destruction from that that i never took up drugs maybe it's just my disposition to go i'm actually for me i i really wanted to take on that it was my responsibility to be healthy not for me but for the people who love me because i know how awful it is when people are not taking care of themselves so my grandparents of course they smoked um why my father and my sister died they were just glitches of the genetic gene pool whatever like they didn't die of ca- you know like predictable cancers or you know predictable diseases so yeah so that's where i came from i was failing academically i i didn't do well i wasn't sporty i wasn't popular i kind of had reached all my dead ends i was what i did have 
which was a sort of both an asset and a liability, was that I was an attractive young woman, a white woman. And so that allowed me, and I also had a bit of a brain. So even though I failed school super spectacularly, like I think I went in because I my parents chopped and changed me, I think I was in like eight different classes from my first school, like unpredictable changes. So... Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of change. There's a, yeah, it, it's you just an overwhelming amount of transition, right? To like just like you said, to be kind of like ping pinballed around. And I just didn't get the foundation, so I didn't learn how to. I didn't. There wasn't continuity when you have that many changes. There isn't continuity. Some people can get it, and they're really. I think if they have calm dispositions, that's what happens. But I just didn't come into the world with that calm disposition. I came in with a fiery disposition, which was angry. You know, there's in Buddhism, you talk about greed, hatred, ignorance. So I came in with the hatred disposition, which uh, Karen Horn, I called the moving against personality. So uh, that, that, that I found that quite a helpful way to think about it. So that's what I came from and why, you know, like I, I was completely at my wits end. I had actually had 19 therapists by the time I got to the one that I spoke about who I met on retreat last year. Um, and she was the first one to really get complex PTSD and how there was just a lot of personality stuff that had been really squished from all this trauma. So um, she kind of glued me back. She she kind of helped me glue myself back together. And then from there, um, she was a very strong Zen practitioner. And she's clearly a very advanced teacher, very senior person. So um, she's a, a Zen practitioner and she said, you just have to take up meditation. So I did it. And I think because she was there to support me with the psychological stuff, it made a really good pairing, the psychotherapy and the meditation. So if people have crap to deal with, then definitely I would say that is, the, it kind of makes the best of both. So, yeah. So that tells you where I came from. If that's it. And then what I did, so what I, what I did with what I had, the assets that I had, was that I uh, did a secretarial course. I worked in London um, and I, I have a UK passport. So I worked in London. I met my ex-husband, who's French, and um, moved to France for a couple of years. I worked for Microsoft as the receptionist, and I'm my, somewhere with my anyway. I have a couple of other languages, Swedish and French. So I learned. I got. I learned French on the job. Let me tell you, in the switchboard, <laughs> there were some kind of conversations there. Um, and but what my real focus was was getting my shit together. So. Um, the job was just a day job. But what it did is it allowed me to observe kind of men and women in roles of seniority and how, uh, who, who is a leader, what does that mean, and how many leaders are actually followers and how many leaders are, are off doing their own thing. And there's a very narrow band of people who are leaders to a group. You cannot be a leader unless you have followers so you have to kind of embody the norms of the group in order to be a leader of that group so Jeff Bezos for instance he would be a terrible leader in a charity or in a union because he's so self-centered so but and likewise somebody who like the Dalai Lama would be terrible at leading Amazon 
because he's too altruistic. So you need to get a community, you need to have a leader that that is inspired, kind of connects with the followers. And that is what I saw in amongst all my work because I was taking the inner journey and observing the outside world. And as a secretary, executive assistant, you see CEOs close up, you hear exactly what the staff think. And let me tell you, they are fully aware of all the shit that goes on down and they are not hoodwinked for one tiny little second about any games and shenanigans and tricks you might think. They see right through that. So um, if you're up, to, if you're doing, if you're bullshitting yourself, you know, get over it because they know it, they see it. And that's what I really saw. And that's what, so I like to work with really clever people. I find that really interesting. I enjoy the, the mind. And I like people who are interested in becoming people, good leaders, that, that middle band where they are attending to the followers, engaged with the staff and leading sort of in connection with the followers. So sorry about that long ramble. I hope I answered the question. Oh, oh you certainly did. Yeah, and it brought up a lot of interesting topics. Let's go with let's go with the leader one, right? That you you ended on here. I love what you're talking about about this attunement between the leader and the follower, and this idea that the leader reflects kind of the shared norms and the shared values of the people that that follow them. Um, can you say is there a story or an example of someone that you met or maybe someone that you worked with that really embodies this to make this real for our listeners? You know, I can't. I work with guys and that's what they do and and they they do well with that. Um, but I actually wasn't, I couldn't figure out what the gap was until I got read this book on the new psychology of leadership by Alex Haslam and he, he works in social identity theory. And I did my honours thesis in social identity theory and that is, and that's exactly what he does, what is described. And that's why the Je Jeff Bezos does well in Amazon because he attracts that kind of character. They work there, and then they're happy. The people who are happy in that environment are people who have that as a normative experience. It just made a lot of sense. Um, uh, so, um, yeah. So. Um, sorry, I just saw a little a little chat there message going, oh, I'm being a bit noisy, so I got a little bit disoriented. So I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I can't give an answer. Oh, but no. what I would say is that what I saw is that there is a huge issue with um, how people work with power yeah. and people misunderstanding control, power, responsibility, and people become very threatened when they have a sense of being weak. I mean, we do. And for men, men who are socially dominant, so they tend to rise up in the ranks, there is a lot of bullying that goes on. And women, I want to speak about there are a lot of women who are bullies because they rise up. The way women do it is that they are relational um, and there's a lot of bitching. And as a secretary, there's a lot of bitching that goes on in amongst, there's a lot of clickiness. Um, and some people call that the tender befriend theory. So on that side, that is true. Um, and for the men, um, what I see is that men who are afraid of being weak become misogynistic 
and racist, particularly if they're white or even if they're not. Um, there's something about men who can't tolerate vulnerability that they become homophobic because soft gay equals weak and so there's a huge that's what I that's what I'm sort of really curious about is kind of breaking into that space yeah yeah that's really interesting it's a big part of my practice um so we can talk a lot about that and I think you're absolutely right where it's this projection of their own shadow side right of their own weakness of their own vulnerability and their fear, right? That if they were like that, if they were like the gay person or the woman or whatever, right? Their object of hatred, that they would implode. They wouldn't be able to do it. So I noticed in some of the guys I work with, there's certainly fear and hatred, but in some ways also like envy, right? Underneath that, there's like this desire of like, oh my God, if I could be as free as that person, if I could be out to my community, if I could do some of that stuff, um, because I think similar to your story, and we'll dive into it more at the end of the break, underneath that anger, as I'm sure you know, is pain, right? Pain, hurt, totally. misattunement, all these things that I think totally. as men, we're not just asked to, but told to cut out of ourselves. We're told to cut all that stuff and just like leave it on the table. Let's talk about that. I can see the timer here. So let's talk about that after the break. I'd love to continue the conversation. Absolutely. So we'll go into our first break. For those listeners, hang on and we'll catch you on the other side. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm sitting here with Wendy Nash. And I didn't mention your company name, but it's called Kindly Cut the Crap, which I love <laughs> that name. Um, it's 
many different meanings, which, which I like. Um, that, that is actually why I, I chose yeah. it. One is I'm a very direct person. You would have figured that out by now. And one of them is that actually my, my kind of way of looking at life is to cut out all the excess, you know, and we have, we just are accumulating tons of not only material, like physical material things, but spiritual material things and, you know, ways that we delude ourselves that we're better than other people, that we're not weak and all that sort of stuff. So, but I, I thought about cut the crap and then I thought, wow, it's a bit too harsh. So um, since my, the way that I've had to work with everything is to be kind, like kind to myself, kind to others. And, and actually a big part of my practice is to um, look for the ways that other people are kind to me. So I talked in the beginning about uh, the importance of, you know, the work, the footwork that you, you and, and the engineer had done to get this happening today um, and also my own preparation and the equipment that we've we've got um, and all that is about sort of really paying attention to how well am I receiving this you know I think Mr Rogers he's an American I, I gather from the 1970s he was in an interview with I think somebody called Charlie Rice who I gather from the 70s and he says you know it's really about receiving gracefully and and I think that we rush around and we do, 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 thinking what we've got to do is do, do, do. But actually, before you can give to others openly, you need to receive. And unless we are nourished and notice what is coming out at us, actually what is offered freely that we are dismissing, we, we are not able to give uh, with generosity. We might give, but it might be begrudgingly, resentfully, all that, or through duty. But it's not with heart because we haven't, we haven't got a heart that's open to receive, so therefore we can't give to receive with open heart. So that's... Yeah, and that's I, think that, I think that really ties into what we were talking about before the break with power. You know, the, the men I work with that are on that, you know, homophobic, racist, um, misogynist, uh, sometimes like, you know, even narcissistic spectrum, what I see from them um, is that they don't know how to receive and, and they were never taught to receive and never taught to nourish. And they have this internal message about like, it's me against the world, or I have to take everything, right? Like no one's going to be there for me. No one's going to help me. I need to, if anything's going to happen, I need to make it happen, which comes across as incredibly aggressive, right? And it can be very damaging to people. But we were talking before the break of how that comes from a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And I think a lot of neglect and misattunement. And I'm wondering, um, you can answer the question, I guess, in two ways. One would be what you see in your practice working with CEOs. And two, I'm curious your view of what Buddhism says about power and hierarchy um, and dealing with these types of things. There's Because that's a big thing in, in some Buddhist practice too, right? Is the, the idea of a guru or the idea of a monk or a, a um, you know priesthood in some ways. So there's a lot to go there. Go there's a that. lot to go there. I'll quickly touch into the Buddhist stuff because... <clears throat> You know, the Dalai Lama says, watch your guru for 10 years, study them. Yeah. And my thing is, if you sense any sense of elitism or exclusion or anything like that, run the opposite way. If there's some kind of like secret thing happening, then run the other way because um, envy, the creation of envy is a narcissistic 
It's an it's a device when we we're, so I want to talk and then I want to talk about narcissism because people are people and sometimes they're Buddhist and sometimes they're you know in senior Buddhist positions. I mean the Tibetan Buddhists are highly feudal. It's a very feudal system. They went basically from the eighth century to the twentieth century in like a, a you know a couple of oh, years. Yeah. Oh yeah. So uh, you know um, and there was there is a sort of quite a lot of Tibetan Buddhists in Boulder. So uh, there is that. And, you know, the same issues arise, you know, and I think it's because we have this deep wounding. And m- one of my big bugbears is that people think that meditation is, is the solution for everything. It's like the answer to everything. I just need to get enlightened and then that will be that. But they're not the same thing. You need to, the way that I work with people, because I guess that's what I found helpful, was to own emotions, own to really become attuned to my own need and actually what was I feeling? So, you know, when you meditate, um, you it goes off into some kind of great big story. And what I noticed with that is that all those, each thought is a story in itself, but each of those stories links to another one by an emotion that is waiting to be felt. So say, for instance, I feel, you know, I feel angry. Then simply going, I feel angry. Yes, it's true. I feel angry. And, you know, in a sit, you can bring that to mind, you know, you can do that. And that's really nice to sort of allow the emotion to the body, for it to land in the body and to move through. Um, And it stops then it acting out and you're not suppressing it. It's kind of that middle place where you just engage with it. And I was speaking with a nun last week um, in in one of the the Buddhist traditions, and she said, oh, that's what the Buddha said. So I didn't know that, but uh, not to say that I'm a Buddha, but uh, <laughs> but clearly that's on the right track. So I thought that was quite a useful one. And I also just want to describe what is narcissism because that was my journey is to go from this narcissistic, the kind of character you just described there, you know, me against the world, there's no one there to support me and da-da-da. Um, So what happens when we are young and in the world is that um, we need the environment to provide an emotional safe space. And if, like me, you have huge calamities and the emotional environment is just focused elsewhere or the person, my parents were raised by servants, you know, it wasn't a warm and fuzzy environment. They're just kind of clueless because they never received it. So um, by just sort of, allowing allowing yourself to, yeah so it needs to come in very supportive and engage with the emotions and then there's a point where even shame humiliation and guilt can be included in that picture it takes a while but once we're in with the with that and we can allow those emotions to ex- be experienced um there's a kind of a click at that point where a huge backlog of shame arises. Mm-hmm. And people often get quite suicidal at that point because they go, oh, I've been a horrible person, but my, but I, I haven't been able to engage with that because there's, you know, this huge backlog and it's, it's enormous. And in, when on that day when I had that happen with me, my therapist said, you can call me anytime. And... I I had alcohol, you know, I used to drink in those days. I had alcohol in the fridge and I just poured it down the sink and I sat on the sofa for like two hours 
going, I just have to wait for this to pass. I just have to wait for this to pass. It was awful. It was a really awful experience. So when when you're coming from that sense of lack of attunement, as you called it, there is, it's not like the we are separate. It just feels separate. And that's a separate thing just because we feel uh, alone doesn't mean to say we are alone just because we feel, and this was one of my big ones, just because I felt unloved doesn't mean to say I was unloved. And that took me a long time to recognise um, because I started to look in my childhood. John McCransky, do you know John McCransky? Yeah. He, does, he has a, a great book called Awakening Through Love. That's my staple book. Um, and he, had this, he has this practice, Chapter 1, I think it is, and he says, look into your early life for moments where someone has been kind to you. Now, they might have been awful to you generally, but in one moment were they ever kind? And I thought, oh, actually there was tons of moments like that. So so the leader who is still stuck in that first phase, and that's why it's called egocentric, it's because you're kind of inhabited fully in the ego, but you don't know where the edges are. And you're relying on the outside. Well, this was my experience. I was relying on the outside world to provide the edges that I internally didn't feel because I didn't have a sense of my own self. And I know in Buddhism they talk about you shouldn't have a self. It's, it's not that you shouldn't have a self. You shouldn't have this. The self is not fixed. So it's not just one thing. You're not just good, just bad. And that's, that's, what, that's the narcissism that says I'm only good. They are all bad. And that, that level of binary thinking is, is, is sitting there. So that's the first phase. And then the second phase of narcissism is really becoming super familiar with the castle. I sort of say the first one is to open the drawbridge on the castle um, and allow the emotions to walk in the door um, just gently through that method. I feel sad. I feel angry. I feel shame. I feel humiliated. Yes, it's true. I feel humiliated. Those are painful things. I mean, I, they still crop up for me, you know. And um, but, but once you're familiar with all that, the the energy of them is dissipated and then once they're inside the castle that this it's like having all those emotions on the inside allows you to kind of feel where the edges of the castle really is and then and then you notice actually that the the kind of castle bricks which seemed so solid before are actually highly permeable and there are lots of bricks missing and there are lots of gaps so that's the metaphor that I do and then the last phase which is enlightenment, which I don't live in, but I did have a half day last year where I was there in that space. And um, and what's really clear is the castle is still there. It's just you don't inhabit it. It's sort of over there and uh, it stops being, you stop inhabiting the castle. But the castle is still there and you can put it on when you want and you can take it off when you want. But the castle is this idea of I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that. They should be kind. They shouldn't do this. I should be here. I should be successful. I should be thin. I should be beautiful. I should have this house. I should have that car. Or I should be enlightened. I should be um, kind. I should be spiritually developed. I should be all that sort of stuff. And that that then steps into the materialism of spiritual bypassing. Um, but so spiritual bypassing happens you know, that's just narcissism. That That is the narcissism where we are repressing our own needs. And it's very subtle, all that stuff, you know. 
So, um, yeah, so I hope, um, I hope I haven't gone into too many tangents or, or not answered the question. Oh, I, like, I think it's really clear what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense to me where you're talking about what I'm hearing from you is that there's like this prison that we make, that we project out, right, based on our childhood conditioning, based on who we are, what happened to us, based on the pain there, right? And we can get stuck in that. And through meditation practice and through psychotherapy, you mentioned the combination, which I think is an incredibly powerful combination, is we can start to get familiar with the territory. And then all of a sudden we realize that it's actually not, it's not real, right? It's not objectively true. It might be subjectively true. It might've felt that way and it might still feel that way, but it's not, there is no actually objective truth in that way. Um, And there's a, a wonderful freedom. And I like what you said. I always want to underline it for people that are interested in meditation is, you know, you look in the movies about what meditation is and people think it's like sitting on a mountaintop, watching a sunset, feeling blissed out. But my experience, and it sounds like your experience and most of people who I know that are practitioners, it's unbelievably painful and uncomfortable and humbling. And it brings up all the crazy thoughts and the murderous instincts and the suicidal thoughts and the, you know, the darkest dark and the lightest light at the same time. And it can feel very uh, maddening. So I really appreciate you talking about that process where it is about feeling the shame and the guilt and the humiliation and the regret. But in my experience, I'm curious, this is yours, that made room for the joy and the gratitude and the compassion, like all the stuff that is kind of promised with the meditation practice. Yeah. So, um, so, somebody once said to me about drugs, you know, what it gives today, it takes tomorrow. And my feeling with meditation is what it takes today, it gives tomorrow. (laughs) So it's really like, it's just a shitty process most of the time. And it's frustrating and it's boring and it's uncomfortable. And if you do long retreats, you just go, oh, my God, what am I doing here? And um So it's a bit disorientating. But I realised that I hadn't, in amongst all that, you know, it is painful. But but going back to the question of the weak man and and what it means to feel weak, because because the lack of attunement isn't there, people become afraid of expressing any tenderness because the environment was not supportive. And so it's the fear of being, uh, it's actually a fear of our own tenderness that we we that is triggered and and because we don't know how to access it it's like a little cold hard ice around it I feel um and it's it's really hard and it's painful and and that's that's what makes it um really difficult to engage with it's because it's it is a backlog and it's it's hard Um, and I encourage anybody who's listening to the program to to notice any moments of shame and humiliation I think people who are particularly prone to the weak man fear and being very caught up in that is uh, people who are very socially dominant so um, and so it's just a matter of allowing feelings to arise and saying, I feel humiliated. Yes, it's true. I feel humiliated. And you can do that driving along in a car in a fit of rage. I feel angry. So, yeah. Yeah. And building up that tolerance, right, to realize that, that those feelings aren't going to kill you and you can tolerate them and that they aren't you, right? You are the thing that experiences those feelings. 
So we got to move to our next commercial break. When we come back, we'll talk more to the listener. Um, I'd love it. Any kind of techniques that they might be able to take, any kind of mindset shifts, whatever can be helpful. I think there's many people connecting to this episode right now. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C, dash, azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot, teachable.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here with Wendy Nash from Kindly Cut the Crap. And Wendy, I am curious about what you would tell somebody who is very new to meditation. Maybe they've tried before and it's felt too wild, it's felt too uncomfortable. Maybe they have ADHD. Uh, maybe they struggle with routine or with you know the idea of committing to what can be a lifelong practice. How would you have somebody start? So people have this idea that you have to sit, like you said before, you know, on a mountaintop in bliss. And we've just spoken for a few minutes about how it's bloody uncomfortable a lot of the time. And so I think I guess the first thing is to recognize it's just going to be bloody uncomfortable a lot of the time. So you don't sit up with this sort of failure, oh, unless I feel bliss, I'm kind of failing, you know. If I've got a wild mind, I'm failing. And I think, you know, we have a very distracted world and there's a lot of input and we're not used to boredom. So that's definitely true. We're not, even though boredom is the most creative space you can be in. Um, But so that's already for people, you know, without ADHD, that's already a problem. But for people who have really attention issues, um, you know, just go with what you feel actually I think is really important. Notice the junctions between I have a friend and she just, I'll be talking to her and then she's off over here and then she's off over there and it's, And what would normally be a sort of a, I don't know, a 20-minute conversation takes two hours, partly because she's Brazilian, so there's a lot of enthusiasm. But um, 
partly just because it goes over here and goes over there and then I have to sort of try and get it back to some sort of space that's sort of a bit more centred. Um, but really just to notice what happens at the moment of jump I think is really what just before. So when I was in, in therapy, my therapist, I said something really horrible to her and she said, just before you said that, what went through your mind? And I was like, oh, wow, contempt. Like I was horrible, you know, like I, I had stuff to work through. There's no two ways about it. And so I would, I would um, suggest to people who have this, this kind of tendency to move quickly to notice just before the distract, the movement happened, to just before that happened, what went through my mind? Just not to change it but simply to notice it. So for me, the way that I think about meditation is it's so much about just noticing what is here. The Buddha never said, don't get angry. The Buddha said, notice when anger arises, there is anger. You know, that's all it is. And so you can apply that principle everywhere. And, and some really simple practices, um, that's quite a sophisticated one to kind of go just before I moved, what went through my, you know, what went through my mind. That is, that's not going to be something you do and then I've got it. It, it takes time. Um, my favourite meditation practice is one called Leave No Trace, which is a Zen practice. I think it's Jan Chosen Bays who... Um, I sort of read an article of hers about that. And what it is is you, you, you know, you go to the bathroom and you, you brush your teeth morning and evening. And then there's the detritus left in the basin to come back to later, you or someone else. And it's kind of like, does somebody else really need to see what you've done there? <laughs> you know, can there be a way of making it? So, like, there's no trace of that. Like, who really needs to see your toothpaste? Old toothpaste is a bit scabby. So if you just get it after you brush your teeth, you just get the cloth, you wipe it down, and then you put the cloth back as if that activity has no trace of it. There is no trace left of it. That's quite a nice way to just become more aware of the body. It doesn't take any time. You're not doing anything extra out of your day. And if anything, you're actually reducing the burden of cleaning on the weekend because you don't have to do that. And likewise, when you have a shower, after the shower, while you're still in the cubicle, you get the scraper and the cloth and you wipe it down all the water. And that's A, stops mould from building up. It means you don't have to clean it on the weekend. Um, and you, it means the next person who uses the shower has a lovely clean shower. And it means, like me, when I have rental inspections, I'm confident that I'm not going to get busted by the real estate agent going, you haven't taken care of, that's a black man. I don't get that anxiety about that either. So, um, and then you can do it with like your coffee cup. You, instead of putting it down on the side, you wash it up, you get the tea towel, you put it straight in the cupboard. And then you never have to worry about clutter. You never have to worry about doing it later. And <laughs> I realized this had stopped being a meditation practice the other day because the whole point of meditation is to notice, ah, what am I doing? Am I going, ah, oh, I'm leaving it to later. The other day my partner was cooking an omelette and he'd done the mushrooms and the uh, onion and he'd fried them all up and, you know, the pan was still dirty, the, everything was still dirty, so I just grabbed it and I washed it up and I put it away 
And he turned around and he's like, where's my pan? And I had not been attentive to what his need was, that he hadn't actually cooked the omelette part, he'd just done the <laughs> mushrooms and the onions. So, like, actually, I wasn't attentive. And so meditation is about noticing when we are attending and when we are absent. So I really like that one because then you don't get left with the burden of the cleaning at the end of the week. And, and I, you know, for the first time I started, I've been doing it for a few years, but... <clears throat> We moved recently and I really took it up with a vengeance. And I just feel so happy to live in a house where I feel it's I'm able to care for my own space. I live in a clean, dignified environment. Um, I appreciate where I go. You know, I, I go into each room and there's no crap there, you know. So I really like that. I, I recommend that's a great practice for everyone to do. And if you if you get caught up, I uh, was speaking with somebody recently and he said, oh, yeah, I do that all the time and, you know, even when I shouldn't. And so when I shouldn't is like going, I'm resentful actually that I have to do this. And that then is a conversation to be aware of or something internally going, right, well, what is going on here and how do we open to that? So it's really a good, for people who have very active bodies, that's a really good good place to start there's a really good uh there's a uh, i don't know if you've heard of venerable rabina Corton. do you know her she's not, a, no she's in fpmt and she she came to buddhism because she had run out of people to hate like she was a lesbian separatist and a communist <laughs> she was she's a fiery character she has bipolar she has 14 sisters or something like that, all of them were abused by the father. And uh, there's a huge investigation into uh, sexual abuse in institutions here a few years ago, and her sister was the lead person on that. So she was full of rage, rage as far as the eye could see. And she couldn't sit on the cushion for seven years. She became a nun and then just couldn't sit. So it takes time. So patience is part of the process. So that's one. The next one uh, is one which I think is walking meditation, is really good for people who can't sit down. And just choose somewhere like the corridor and notice what is your what are your feet like on the floor? A, what is the texture? Is it cold? Is it hot? That's a good one in the beginning. Uh, is it hard? But I like to kind of, are you stomping? Are you moving softly? Are you, what's the rest of your body doing as you walk down that space? Just choose one, cor one, one room. The corridor is good because you go from the kitchen to the bathroom, to the office, to the bedroom, so uh, to the lounge room. So as you go down that corridor, just each time you touch it, notice what's going on. And it just allows the body to become a bit, you know, we, we start to inhabit the body a little bit more, which is nice. And for people who want to learn to sit, I, I just recommend when you get into bed at night, turn your phone on to airplane mode and set a timer for 60 seconds, just 60 seconds. You can do this morning and evening or just in the evening, whatever works, um, or just in the morning, just go with what, what feels right. Um, and everybody can sit still for 60 seconds. And just keeping it super low like that, super small, means that you can set up a routine because it's very like everybody's got 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got 60 seconds. 
and you just notice the breathing. And if I guess if you have little people, like you're a carer of small you know, children or whatever, and you don't have 60 seconds, when you sit on the loo, notice how whether it feels warm or cool, whether your body's tense. Uh, the loo is the toilet, by the way, as an Australian English word. Um, you know, what is the body doing in the contraction? Is it rushing? Are you pushing it? Are you letting it? You know, all that sort of stuff. And I know that sounds a bit crude, but actually that's your body. You cannot not notice the body in that moment because it's doing its thing. And you do that several times a day. It's a really good meditation practice to notice that one. And likewise, if you've got the, the timer on 60 seconds, to just notice the breath, actually. What is it doing? You know, And so I say start with one minute for a week and then if you can, go to two minutes the following week and if you can, do three minutes the following week. And it's better to do one minute every day than go, I don't, I don't want to do that today mm-hmm. and skip it. And uh, I have clients who've been doing four minutes for three months because their minds are really wild. And then another practice that I really like, um, which is to, in your morning, um, when you're drinking your coffee while you're waiting for it to cool, if you're sitting down or you're standing or whatever, is to just think about this time yesterday. um, Think about anything pleasant that happened. So there might have been sunshine or there might have been, you know, just a little bit of rain that arrived after a long drought and how lovely that feels. Or it might be a friend texted and said, I thought of you, so, you know, this might be of interest. These are acts of kindness, but it's it's like... um, really looking for positive stuff, which is not to say that the bad stuff doesn't happen. I'm definitely not saying that. Um, But just to start to calibrate it so we notice what is good too. So they're my three favourite beginner ones. Yeah, those are some some great recommendations. I'm curious in our final moments here, what would you say to a leader who wants to bring some of these mindful principles to their work, maybe to their management style or to their public speaking? How can they start to integrate it and bring it into the workplace? I think be mindful of what you say. Be really aware of the words, the impact of the words. Learn to listen better. Don't ask questions. So I have some things. So um, when someone comes with a problem or they've got a, a thing happening, you ask, tell me more about that Um, to open up the discussion. um, Ask the questions that start with what and how. Avoid why. Um, Listen, really listen. And um, the best question is, you know, what I hear you care about is. And that sounds like that's not a mindfulness question, but if, uh, if, if somebody's If you're actually going, so what I've heard you care about is really paying attention to what people will find of benefit and also what will work for me and also how to work with your practice and and how to understand Buddhism and leadership and how they all fit together, narcissism. So sort of gaining clarity about that whole process. So that's what I've heard you care about. And that makes you feel heard and it is a mindfulness practice that 
So I would say that is the simplest way. Um, don't ask the question why because that's accusatory and gotcha. don't ask close questions. So that they're my sort of go-to leadership mindfulness things. It's not about sitting on a cushion. It's not about clearing your mind. Listen better. That's my thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's a great thing to end the show on. So, Wendy, this episode flew past us. Um, I'm curious if people want to learn more about you, if they want to find you online, where should they go to look? So uh, website, it's uh, unforgettable. Business people really hate it, my company name, but everybody else really loves it. So it just goes to show don't always listen to business people because they just have their own agenda. Um, Kindlycutthecrap.com. So just you can go there. That's the easiest. I have got LinkedIn and I have got, and you're welcome to connect with that. There's a couple of Wendy Nashes, so don't go to the wrong one. Um, but it's, it's uh, if you go to the website, it's, I think it, I've just had my website done, so it should be there. I'm not a big social media person just because I think it's more distraction and more noise and I haven't figured out the difference between whether it's useful or whether it's hype. So the website's really the best one, kindlycutthecrap.com. And I just wanted to say thank you very much for your thoughtfulness and kindness and also for the very diligent work of our engineer who's sitting here attending, making sure, doing the countdown, doing the timings um, and making sure it's a good quality recording for the audience and the community. So thank you very much to the engineer and thank you very much to you for the program, getting it, taking an interest, doing all that sort of stuff and, and making it interesting for the audience. Great. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're listening out there and you find this valuable, definitely share it with someone that you think could benefit benefit from it. Um, give us a five-star review on iTunes. We're really working on building up those numbers. We've been doing pretty well. Um, it really helps to get the message out there and to make this information available to people. So Wendy, thanks so much for joining us. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next week on another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same. <laughs>